Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and longtime listeners to this show know that the whole point, the whole name of the show is to go beyond politics, to go beyond the day-to-day and the headlines and the, the scroll. What do they call that at the bottom of, of your cable? The, 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 the crawl. We like to go beyond the crawl and look a little bit deeper. And so I was totally delighted to discover that one of my former colleagues from Capitol Hill, another veteran staffer, Ann Kim, is doing the same thing as a writer. She's a Washington Monthly contributing editor. She's the author of a really fascinating book, Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. And she does a lot of the same thing. She takes a closer look at issues that you kind of thought you knew about on the surface. And Anne, I'm delighted to have you on Beyond Politics. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's a real honor to be here. It's it's absolutely delightful. There's actually this series of shows that I do where I catch up with former Capitol Hill colleagues. There may be the, mo- the most fun that I have doing this. I It feels to me like working on Capitol Hill is sort of the best preparation for taking a wide view and being able to delve into lots of different public policy topics, lots of different societal topics. It, I, I, is that right? Like, do, do you feel like your Capitol Hill training fed into everything you do now? It, it, it does. I mean, you, you get retail politics on the ground, right? So, so much of the political battles in Washington are ideological, but most of the time, the people who have been argue, who are arguing for various positions that they have, have never actually worked in a Hill office and listened to the different sides of the debate and have had to really think about how is this particular policy position going to affect someone on the ground in my district. And that's right. the kind of experience you get in Capitol Hill. It's something that every advocate, every think tank person, every academic who talks about what should happen on Capitol Hill, they need to spend time in a Hill office. And I think that will do a lot to kind of moderate our politics, make it a little bit more pragmatic. Maybe we get something more done <laughs> if uh, that experience were more widespread. Well, you know, that really, that really resonates with me. It's something that I, I think I've, I, I've told pieces of this before. One of my best seminal moments in graduate school when I was getting trained to get into public policy was a, a professor of mine, actually, you know, a Republican, the, these, these things are not partisan in any way, who encouraged our whole class to think through a policy scenario. And as he put it, play the movie. He said, I'm a movie guy, so play the movie. And I think I think the example he gave was the Rwandan genocide. Well, we were we were a bunch of, you know, do good liberal types. And he said, would you have sent troops in? And, and we all said, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Are you kidding me? And then he said, okay, I, I'm a movie guy, play the movie. How does this work? It's a country the size of New Jersey. Where are they going to go? And we said, uh, the villages where the violence is happening. Okay. All right. Play the movie. What are they doing there? They're going door to door. They're knocking on doors. Yes. We said, okay, well, what are they doing? They confiscating weapons. Most of those weapons are farming implements. So you're taking away people's farming implements. How are you going to do that? And his point wasn't that there was a right or a wrong policy decision. It was that it's not that the devil's in the details, it's that the angel is in the details, and that too often people who are casual politics commentators think about it from a 30,000-foot level, and they don't play the movie. And I, I mean, that was one of the things that I, I really... So for example, in kind of scrolling through some of your recent pieces, I really enjoyed 
the article you wrote in December where you laid out, hey, Democrats, pick your chin up, for goodness sakes. Why are you so down in the mouth about Joe Biden's first year in office? I wrote something similar. I think you did it better. What was your whole point with that? Well, the the point was that the expectations, perhaps, that progressives had of Biden coming into office were so high. I mean, think about where we were coming from. And it is kind of to your point about, you know, OK, you're going to send troops into Rwanda. What's going to happen? What is it that Biden needed to do when he got into office? He needed to pick up all these pieces, like this shattered government that Donald Trump had left behind, a pandemic, a recession. No, he's not going to be FDR in the first 30 days with, you know, this, these massive government programs that are going to bring back a progressive paradise in that short of a time frame. And the immediate bad-mouthing or the um, criticism that came level the Biden administration really, I think, damaged the presidency by uh, setting the bar too high. And of course, anyone coming into that office is going to fall short. But it kind of set the tone of negativity that I think the Democrats are now having to really dig themselves out of the hole because they have painted a failed presidency almost from the get-go. I mean, it's almost a self-destructive uh, exercise in those first hundred days when they set the expectations too high for the Biden presidency, given the challenges that he was coming into. It's well, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, my provocatively titled article at the time was that Joe Biden deserves an A plus and, and any other answer is insane. And, you know, look, I, I was I was being provocative with it, but I think what comes through and I would commend your article to people go back if you're if you need a little mental reset, go back. Just Google Ann Kim in Washington Monthly and look this up. It's worth reading because you get into the numbers and you get into the details of it. And I think you make a very compelling case. And, I, you know, I just I just wrote something very similar in my recent Newsweek article looking ahead to the 2022 uh, midterms, which is that people don't understand the, the kind of impact you can have just by controlling small pieces of power or just holding on to the Senate. So for example, and this goes to your point about the shattered pieces of government, as you put it, people don't understand just how fundamentally Donald Trump reshaped the judiciary. And since assuming office, President Biden has been getting his nominees for federal judges confirmed at a record pace. And he's confirmed 369 out of 521 nominees for key agency positions. So he's picking up those shattered pieces and remaking the government. That's most of where the policy gets done. That's most of where the value for real people comes from. So anyway, commend that article to people. The real one that that caught my eye most recently was you did a breakdown. There was a lot of coverage about Florida Senator and head of the National Republican Senate Committee, the that, you know, they're the Republican Party's group that oversees all of their Senate campaigns. And he came up with an 11 point plan to rescue America, he calls it. And there was a lot of glib coverage of it. Oh, you know, it's blah, blah, blah. You really dove into it and the implications. What stood out to you about that? Well, what really stood out to me was that we're looking at what the MAGA movement looks like beyond Trump. You know, what Rick Scott has done with this document is sanitize a lot of the most um, 
I guess the the bluntest parts of the Trump MAGA agenda and mainstreamed it. You know, um, he has put little slogans and disingenuous doublespeak around some of the more hateful pieces of the agenda that the Trump uh, campaign ran on. And it's going to become part of mainstream Republicanism for the time for you know the foreseeable future. A uh, couple of things wrong with that. <laughs> number one, the substance, of course. Uh, we can get into that in more detail. And number two, Democrats are not ready uh, for pushing back against this agenda, a large part of which is the small government agenda that conservatives have been pushing for decades. A government does not sell itself. And I think that's part of what happened with Build Back Better and some of the things that the um, more leftward side of the progressive movement has been has been pushing. But Democrats still don't have a really credible case for how to make Americans trust in government again. Mm. And a big part of the Rick Scott agenda is to keep chipping away at that bedrock of American democracy, the fundamental functions of government. Uh, and then the way that he tackles race is extremely dangerous, damaging. Um, I'll just give one quick example. He, he says, he proposes that um, no government document should ever ask people what their race is. And he calls that banning the box, you know, which is an allusion to um, progressive uh, proposals to not ask people about their criminal records when they apply for jobs and here, the implication that Rick Scott is making is that, oh, being white is a crime. Um, on the surface, it sure seems like it could be something that a suburban voter might support, right? Yeah, why should we ask about race on government forms? Right, seems but, divisive. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, but that puts Democrats into the defensive, you know, progressives into the defensive to, you, know, you have to explain why is it so important that we ask about race? You know, and then that opens up a very complicated, nuanced discussion about uh, the systemic disadvantages and the long history of discrimination and what that's led to. And it's very, very difficult to distill down into the same kind of talking point that Rick Scott has come up with, ban the box. Absolutely. You know, that's, it's such a good point. It, it really reminds me, Politico Playbook did a very unusual uh, set of coverage of Donald Trump's Wyoming rally ostensibly over the weekend, ostensibly to help Harriet Hageman um, in her primary against Liz Cheney, really was just you know a celebration of him as all things are. And they pointed out that this is their words and it really stood out because they, they really tried to play it down the middle and they, were, they, they did not pull punches in saying, look, his new obsession is he's finding a new marginalized group to pick on and scapegoat and go after because that's what plays to this audience. And what does it do? It forces Democrats to give a long explanation about why that's wrong, why that doesn't make sense. And we're right, we may be right, and that's great satisfaction when we're losing. Because in politics, especially in our current media environment, if you're explaining, you're losing. And his current target of choice is transgender athletes. We could get into that. That's a, that's a whole ball of wax. But that your, your ban the box point is so spot on because, you know, it does on the surface, it sounds like, well, if we just stop dividing people in government data, then they won't be divided. Then we'll erase all, all, all boundaries between people. It sounds 
so great. So it, it's, it's so glib. But if you dive into it, it's incredibly harmful. It's, it, it's such a huge mistake. I mean, my wife is a physician. We've found in countless medical studies that African-Americans respond differently to different medications. You, you, have to, you have to treat different conditions differently. You have to know someone's racial and ethnic background. There are all kinds of other examples that, that you know a thousand times better than I do. But yeah, I mean, that, that one stood out to me. Um, I, I don't know, what, what else from you? You give so many good examples in the article. What else struck you as particularly um, insidious and obnoxious about this 11 point plan uh, for America? Well, so a lot of the proposals that Rick Scott has in there are really about tearing down government, right? Shrinking it, uh, making it uh, um, pretty much kind of a, like this appendage, you know, but he cloaks it in this language of accountability. You know, he says that we need truth in governing, for instance, or we need effective governing, but he wants to sell off, you know, unused government land. What does that mean? Is it going to sell off Yosemite? You know, does that mean all of our national parks are going to be going away? Um, he has this very glib language about, you know, if laws don't work, then we need to sunset them in five years and remake it. But back to your example about what happens when you send troops to Rwanda, what does that actually mean in practicality? It means right. that our Congress is going to be spending every minute of every day looking at every law that's ever been passed and extending it again. They'll never have time to do anything else. Maybe he does want that to happen, maybe not, but it's a very glib talking point. Yeah, if the law is useless in five years, we should sunset it. We should relook at everything. Sure, these things might sound good to a particular group of people for whom um, trust in government is already not a, not a given, right? But again, all of these things put, a, put Democrats back on the defensive. Oh, you can't do that because, and then there's a very large nuanced discussion about that. But Republicans have really perfected the art of disingenuous talking points that elide like 10,000 issues into a single three-word phrase, the death tax, for example, death panels when the ACA was happening. Um, they, and Rick Scott is doing it again, you know, with his agenda, you can go down, a lot of this stuff contradicts itself, but you can go down his entire agenda and it's all talking points like that, that you can tell he's just kind of throwing some spaghetti on the wall, focusing, focus grouping in a way, see what sticks. You're going to hear it in 2024 and we need to be ready. A perfect example out of that is the Mitt Romney 47% thing. And you just have to ask the question, oh, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Right? What do you mean by the, the idea that 47% of Americans pay no income tax, they're dependent on government? Well, okay. Do you, you mean you mean the people who are veterans who are receiving veterans benefits? They're they're dependent on government. They're takers. Do, do you mean people who have who are collecting social security? Which, by the way, you want to sunset? Uh, right. I mean, because that's one of the implications. We're going to sunset all government agencies. Oh, you mean social security? You mean Medicare? Right. I mean, yes, you do. That's what you said. And so it's. It's just, it's amazing. You know, the one that really jumped out to me, I, I interviewed this uh, brilliant economist, Catherine Ann Edwards from Rand Corporation a few months ago on the Great Ideas Show. And this came out of, believe it or not, this is like a lotus flower growing in mud because 
you know, she was on Twitter producing brilliance and nothing good has ever come out of Twitter except for maybe Catherine Ann Edwards tweets. And so <laughs> she does this tweet thread where she explains the nature of poverty in America. And there's this piece of the Rick Scott plan that says, you know, we're not giving anyone welfare benefits unless they're severely disabled or they're aggressively looking for work. Yeah, that's right. Those takers, you know, those those lazy layabout welfare queens. Right. Except what Dr. Edwards shows is that less than three percent of Americans are actually persistently poor. Right. That's a very, very, very small. Actually, a third of Americans at some point over a four year period are, are can be defined as under the poverty line. They're poor. They would qualify for government assistance in some form. One third of Americans. That's who you're talking about because poverty in America is transient. So anyway, on each of these issues, on each of these points, it just, it seemed to me, and you do a great job of unpacking this. It's like, well, wait a second. What are you talking about here? Like once you get past your talking point, do you realize the implications? But of course, politically that's impossible because I just took two minutes describing a piece of this and he was able to say his point in like under six seconds yeah no that's right that's right and another kind of meta theme throughout rick scott's uh, agenda that is another point that's going to be difficult for democrats to review is this whole subtext of the deserving versus the undeserving and that's something you're alluding to too with the discussion right. about edwards you know, a large part of the Republican agenda generally over the past several decades, especially when it comes to social policy, is this line between the working and the non-working, the deserving and the undeserving, and the racial subtext, the black underclass, quote unquote, versus white people, you know, right. and all of that is collapsed into this idea of you don't deserve benefits unless you are working, you know, and it's one thing that's easy to say, right? It's it, it's easy to say, and it, it and it look it's of a piece. I don't think it's a stretch to say that all of the focus that's been on great replacement theory in recent weeks since the Buffalo shooting, there is a direct straight line connection to that theme that comes through that you're alluding to here. And Rick Scott's, what do you even call this? Um, you know, PowerPoint of of. Uh, uh, you know, of like jet fuel for the for the ultra right. I don't know. Um, you know, there's a direct connection there to this feeling of only these people deserve and have earned whatever from the government. They 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 only participate fully in society this way. You know, right. and and there's there's this group of people who don't fully deserve it, who are getting a leg up, who are getting benefits, who are coming to take your rightful place. And you should be nervous about it. And here's a simple solution. Let's just, everyone should pay some income tax. These people are takers. Anyway, now I'm getting on my soapbox and uh, that's, that's, that's not particularly helpful. You recently wrote a report. There's been a, a lot of discussion, I think deservedly so, um, about underrepresentation um, for racial minorities and women and that intersection in science and technology and engineering and math, the STEM fields. And you take a, you take a deep dive approach to that. And, and you decided to team up with the American Enterprise Institute to do that. What, what was the genesis of, of your project? Yeah, thanks. Um, so 
huge credit actually goes to AEI. Um, they commissioned me to do this, and they had done a survey, actually a quantitative survey back in 2020, um, looking at the experiences of um, STEM professionals generally, and noticed that um, women and minority workers had very different perceptions of their success in the field and their opportunities for success. And what they asked me to do was to find, to track down, they had you know, names and I called dozens of people to ask if they were willing to speak with me and conducted about 25 qualitative in-depth interviews, um, white men, black women, you know, black men, just across the spectrum. What was your experience in STEM? And um, what is in the report are these unvarnished interviews of what people said. And the big takeaway here is that the realities that are inhabited by um, white men <laughs> in STEM fields is 180 degrees from what many women and minority workers experience. And the perceptions of each other's worlds are equally divergent. So uh, this problem of the lack of representation in STEM, it's always been about, well, let's recruit, let's recruit, let's recruit. But the reality is, is as we've been talking about in the last segment about nuance, it is about nuance, it's much deeper than that. Do people feel welcome? Do people who are in power even perceive that female and minority workers are having problems? You know, and are they noticed? Are they getting opportunities for advancement? And too often the answer is, is no. And there is a failure to communicate, a failure to understand, a lack of empathy even to some extent about what's going on. So I'm hoping that this report, and I think it is important that it's coming out from a center right organization, uh, will have some impact because it is laying out some of these truths in a way um, from a place where you wouldn't necessarily expect it and in a format that may not be um, typical for, for the kind of thing you might see from, from this field. Yeah, I think that that counterintuitiveness, I, I one of the shows that I do, I, I have a whole podcast that, dedicated to it because it's something I really believe in, The Great Ideas Show, which I urge people to subscribe to. I, I talk to experts from left-leaning think tanks and from right-leaning think tanks and from the center with this, with this idea that sometimes hearing ideas that come from a different ideological perspective, but the same place of actually caring about the underlying issue is so valuable. It gives you, it, it just changes the way you think about things. This has happened for me so many times on this show where I don't, I almost get more, even if I agree going in with the folks who are coming from the left, I, I kind of, I feel that's my comfort zone. I learn more from the people who come from a little bit more of a, of a right perspective. And I, I just, I, I find it eye-opening. So I, I appreciate that aspect of this. What, as you're doing these interviews, you're talking to all these people, you're getting their story. What, what, what grabbed you? What, was there a story that, that really, that really stood out to you. Yeah, you, you know, some of this was a lot of this actually was deeply personal. You know, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, right? And so, oftentimes, I found that I was like the only Asian girl, you know, wherever I was in high school, in college, whatever. Uh, and, and that is actually the story that I heard over and over again from the women and the minority workers I talked to, in particular this feeling of social isolation because they were 
the only one. Mm. And being the only one leads to a lot of disadvantages when you're in a workplace. You know, work is not just about the work. Work is about the relationships you build. Work is about the social capital that you accrue with mentors and you know, the networks. If you're the only one and people aren't reaching out to you or you don't hear about opportunities, you're not going to get ahead. Um, so, you know, these women who are a woman who was the only one at the, at the engineering firm, you know, she had trouble, she had to drop out when she had children because it was just not an environment that at least, you know, at all understood what it was like to be a working mother. I've been there too. And so I know what you're going through. Yeah, yeah. So that, that experience of social isolation was probably the most common theme, all the ramifications that come from that. And of course, what happens with that is that it's self-perpetuating. If you're the only one, then how long are you going to last? And then someone else is going to come around in a few years, but they too are going to be the only one. And this is why there's never enough representation because people don't make it to the point where they can hire others who might be more like them. Mm. You know, climbing that wall becomes too difficult for too many people. The other thing I noticed too was that the women and the minority workers I spoke to were ridiculously overqualified for where they were. You know, we, I, I spoke to quite a few people and this was a random assortment, right? Many of whom had advanced degrees, many of them had PhDs, um, very few of them had jobs in upper management. Uh, on the other hand, many of the white men I talked to had bachelor's degrees, but they were all senior managers, many of them, or had gone very far. And that kind of tells you about the stereotyping that still happens in STEM fields where there's a presumption that if you are um, not white or if you're female, then maybe you're not as smart. And so people have to overcompensate and that takes a pretty heavy toll or have to work against stereotypes and that takes a heavy toll. And coupled with the social isolation that a lot of people experience and no wonder that diversity is still a problem. Um, the third thing I will mention, though, is that, um, and it gets to some of the issues that we were talking about earlier, is this disconnect and perception between people who are white and people who are not about how big of a problem racism is. You know, and I think, and this is borne out by other polls that have been done. Um, if you've ever um, spoken to Mitch Landry, who was a former mayor of uh, um, New Orleans, who has an organization that's been looking at the racial divide. And he's done some fascinating focus groups and polling, looking at this, again, this divide in perceptions about how big is a problem of racism is. And for white Americans, racism is about individual acts of malice, right? Calling somebody something terrible, you know, or mm. outrageous against someone. That doesn't happen as much anymore. That's not as much overt racism, although you wouldn't know it against Asian Americans <laughs> at this at this point in time, but we no longer technically have Jim Crow on the books. Therefore, for many people, racism does not exist. If you are not white, racism is much more subtle than that. It's woven into, it's embedded in the structures that you face. Um, it's, it's uh, people don't like to hear the word microaggression, but it exists. The subtle slights, the not being included in a meeting of your peers when they're talking about a problem, that kind of thing, you can't say, directly that was quote racist, but there's something going on underneath the surface that tells you that you don't belong. Um, that's what people experience and that's what people in the majority don't necessarily see, let alone acknowledge, 
But I think it is the underlying reason for much of the racial divide in this country and much of the differences, the gulf in perceptions about how big the problem is and what to do about it. I think that's that's an interesting insight. One thing that at some point, I think most people who are married come to learn is that your own view of whether something is an issue or not an issue doesn't matter. If your spouse feels that it's an issue, then it's an issue, then it's real and you have to care. And we are in a marriage in America with all of us with very different backgrounds. Um, We look different, many of us. And so we're in a marriage. And I think we we fought a a civil war over the fact that we want to stay in this marriage together. We hope we don't have another civil war again. But that means that we, we do have to take seriously if there's a partner involved who, who feels that there's a problem. It doesn't matter if, if the perception on one side is, yeah, we're, we're past that. No more Jim Crow. We're, we're good now, right? What matters is, no, no, there's a partner in this marriage that, that does not feel that way. And that, that makes a huge difference. Why do you think this problem is so persistent though when we see that the majority of college graduates now are women women are actually becoming far more academically and professionally the 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 younger generation maybe this is a generational thing maybe it'll just take some time for this to turn over but we are seeing um some really significant changes at least in terms of gender and uh, kind of academic advancement. And so you would think that at a certain point that would begin to change the overall atmosphere. Why, why are you still finding such, such a persistent clear pattern in, in your report? Sure, I mean, there, there are a couple of things going on. One thing is generational. When you think about um, the women I talked to who are in their forties and fifties, who had a really rough time, many of them are not in upper management positions. When you look at the upper management, who's doing the hiring, you know, who is doing the mentoring, there still aren't very many women there. And so, um, yes, there might be more women who are college graduates now, but they're very young. They're not yet in these positions of power. And so the turnover isn't happening. But like I said before, to the extent that there is social isolation of the people who are coming in, you know, you may not make it to those top echelons, right? And you may not be able to change the complexion or change the gender makeup of the workplace you're in if you don't make it far enough. Uh, And that's been happening. It's very slow. Maybe in 20 years, we'll see something different. But right now, you know, the women who should be managers are not. Number two, a big part of what's happening is occupational segregation. Yeah, you have more women who are college graduates, but they're concentrated in particular majors that tend to be uh, more female dominated. So when you're looking at the quote unquote hard sciences like engineering, women are still a minority of engineer, uh, engineering majors. They're still a minority of computer science majors. They're still a minority of like physics. Um, some of these, but they are a majority of women who are studying, of people who are studying say psychology, you know, or health. You still have these gender lines that are drawn within fields that um, serve to perpetuate. And of 
naturally the 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 harder engine the harder science fields are also the better paying right so, right 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 yeah, you had that going on as well mm. well kind of on the theme of digging in and looking below the surface i want to talk about your book a little bit you wrote uh and this is now uh two years old um you, you wrote a book abandoned america's lost youth and the crisis of disconnection i i what what brought you to this topic why why did you want to look at this slice of lost youth of of a segment of americans who we don't think about yeah well that you know the the annie casey foundation actually was a uh um, partner for me on on this book. They had done quite a bit of work on what was happening with young adults and asked um, for a deeper dive on this topic. And it, I think the book actually ties together a lot of the themes that we talking about throughout this conversation, you know, about structural disadvantage. Um, where, we haven't talked as much about this, but where you grow up makes a huge difference in the kinds of opportunities that are available to you. This book is about the 4 million at the time, probably closer to 5 million now, young adults between ages 16 and 24 who are not in school, not working. That's one in six young wow. adults, you know? Wow. And we've seen some recent numbers about the fact that there are at least uh, 1 million fewer students in college uh, today than there were two years ago. And so you're looking at this, this big happy family that we are, that our country about the marriage. <laughs> you see that metaphor? We have a lot. Happy. Uh... All the family, but there's a huge percentage of young adults who are falling behind, who don't have the opportunities to catch up. Um, the book looks into why that's happening. And some of the answers are surprising. You know, rural America is really suffering from... Um, disconnection. Mm. The young adults don't have opportunities for work. They don't have opportunities for schooling. Uh, colleges are going to be closing up shop because they don't have enough students coming their way. And where is that happening? Community colleges in rural areas. Mm. So all these divides that we've been talking about throughout the show are actually going to worsen because you have a generation up, up and coming that is literally disconnected from work opportunities and from educational opportunities and they are going to be a very disaffected um, portion of the society that we're going to have to figure out a way to grapple with in the future and avoid some serious societal and economic problems in the, over the next 20 years and wow, so the, that, yeah that is fascinating i i <laughs> You know, we were just talking about, hey, you know, maybe some generational change in 20 years as this crop of college graduate women who are, you know, who are coming up begin to take on managerial and leadership positions. We'll, we'll see some societal changes. And it's like, huh, that's that's something to look forward to in the future. The picture you're painting here is is actually much scarier that there's that there's a whole generation here of, of young people who feel no connection, who are not going through that that pathway to, to later success and are truly lost. Yeah. Um, the within generation divide is mm. gigantic. You know, we're going backwards as far as, you know, um, 
equality. I mean, you hear all the time that millennials are the best educated generation of all time. That might be true for some segments, but when you're looking at the COVID generation that's coming up, um, when you look at who's not, who's the most likely to be disconnected, who's not going to college, it's low-income people of all races, but it is proportionately and disproportionately people of color, you know, black adults, Hispanic adults, young adults. Uh, one of the more shocking pieces of research I came across recently was the fact that one in five young black men is not in school, not working. Mm. It's a shocking number. Right. And, and what are we doing as a society about that? Are you, well, of course, it, it reminds me of the, the work of Raj Chetty, the economist, who's shown just how profound an impact where you're born has on your, your ladder, yeah. you know, whether, and whether that's a ladder up or a ladder down. Right. I, but do you, one of the things we just talked about in your STEM study was doing qualitative research, actually getting out and talking to people. Did you talk to people in the course of this book who are, who are in this position? And, and, and what did you find in, in, in kind of your investigation? What's, what's going on for them in, in their worlds? Sure. I actually talked to a lot, a lot of young people and, you know, uniformly the young people I talked to who were facing, you know, many of them were facing very difficult circumstances, were actually very optimistic about what they wanted to achieve. None of them were afraid of, you know, hard work. They're facing some incredibly difficult circumstances and structural barriers are going to make it probably pretty difficult to get to where they want to go, but not for lack of trying. And I think it's up to us as the adults to build the opportunity structures for them to succeed. That's where we as a society are failing. We have you know, a, a generation of actually a lot of really bright, ambitious young people who don't have the ramps available for them to climb. You know, they're here with this gigantic gulf between where they are and where they wanna go. You know, that being said, the book does get into a whole array of solutions um, for how you, create the ladders for people. And that goes for anybody, regardless of where you are. That um, jump from high school to college and beyond, that runway has gotten a lot longer for everybody. That's why even middle-class young adults are at home until they're 30, right? Because that runway to independence has gotten a lot longer. Is that what do you do for the young people who may not have that parental support for that long of a period of time, or whose parents are willing but don't have the resources, right? And kind of smoothing out that runway from high school to college. We should have more career counseling in high school. You know, we should have more alternative pathways. Not everybody has to go to a four-year college right away. You know, there are apprenticeships or there can be programs where you're going to college at the same time that you're learning some skill, whether it's an IT or in a trade, you have to really rethink what it means to have higher education. And we'll lose fewer people along the way if we have pathways that are a little bit more welcoming to different kinds of young people and different kinds of ambitions, rather than this, you know, kind of one size fits all approach to what the high school to college journey needs to look like, which is really geared toward a particular kind of person in a particular part of the country um, who looks a particular way. And what about the people? So a lot of these solutions are forward-looking. They're, they're systems 
that that we can put in place to prevent this this segment you know of uh, uh, from continually reoccurring for the kids who are who are younger and are going to hit that age range in 5 years in 10 years what about what about the cohort that's there right now what about that that 5 million 20 or so year olds who are not in school and are not working and are in danger of being lost is there something we can do for them right now to find them yeah that's uh, that's that's really difficult um well higher education as an industry hasn't been the most nimble <laughs> let's say but they're gonna have to be nimble faster <laughs> than they have been and some of them to their credit are changing their business model pretty quickly community colleges in particular who've seen like the most precipitous dives in their moments are suddenly discovering that wow we have got to go back out and try to re-engage people that we've lost so you're beginning to see more um short-term credentialing programs to try to recapture some of the students. You're starting to see more student supports, um, meaning that there's more counseling, there's like even childcare available or people who need an emergency loan. Cause usually it's not uh, desired that uh, results in someone dropping out of college. It's life that, that gets in the way and colleges are finally beginning to realize that's what's happening. Um, one thing that could be really helpful actually the Congress can do is um, enable Pell Grants to be available for shorter term credential programs. Like mm. right now, if you're a low-income student, you can't get a Pell Grant unless you're going full-time in these particular programs with X number of hours that you're sitting in a classroom. Well, that doesn't work if you are working full-time, you know, and you just need a few months in school to become a commercial truck driver. We have a truck driver shortage right now. Or if you want to become, you know, a welder or, uh, a nursing assistant, something like that. These programs that don't require you to be in school for two hours, I'm sorry, for two years, but the federal assistance is not available to you. And there is legislation that Senator Tim Kaine has been sponsoring for a very long time that would enable some of these high quality short-term programs, quality being the key here, to be eligible for federal aid so we can get more of these disconnected um, workers you know, back into school and on the pathway to a higher paid job. Mm. Well, first of all, I think you've come up with something that's highly valuable to corporate America. Some company somewhere is going to grab the slogan, be nimble faster. Um, I just, that feels like a thing. Um, and, and, you know, when that happens, when your ship comes in, I want it just, just a small piece, just a small piece, because I found that idea here on this show. Um, we, we've just got a few seconds. You're working on another book right now. Do you, you want to give just a, just like a 10 second preview? What, what, what's your topic? Well, it's a it's a uh, another book for the new press, and um, I'll be kind of circumspect about it right now. But wow. and it's kind of looking at the kind of reasons why anti-poverty programs have not been as effective as they should be. That sounds highly valuable and very interesting, and we will have to have you back to talk about that. Look, the book writing, I'm not going to jinx you in terms of when that's going to happen. The book writing process is fraught enough, but it will be absolutely a pleasure to have you back whenever that does arrive. And Kim, thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. We appreciate it. 